Amen. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 3. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we are at Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. We'll see how far we get. We probably will go to verse 12. All right, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we ask... uh, As we study this passage, Lord, as we investigate um, John the Baptist, Lord, this, uh, according to Christ, the greatest man ever born of a woman, we pray, Lord, that you would, through your spirit, help us to hear his words, Lord, hear his warning, Father, that we um, would be attentive spiritually. Father, we pray that you would help us to... To see how the text applies to us, uh, not to the person next to us, uh, but to us. May we open our hearts, our minds, uh, our desire to, um, to know you, to walk with you, and to live for you. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism... He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid up at the root of the trees. Therefore... Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now as we work through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So there's, I think the greatest warning about today's passage is, you know, we're, the subject is sort of the, the, the Pharisees and, the, and the, the Sadducees, the scribes wanted to come out, who is sort of normally in that bunch of people. And I think the biggest warning is when we hear the scribes and the Pharisees, I don't know anybody that looks in the mirror and says, I'm a Pharisee. The Pharisee is always that guy, right? We don't, we don't think of ourselves. And so when we come to this text, it could be very easy for us as Christians to sort of to disengage from it, to think it doesn't apply to us because naturally we have Christianity figured out in the, the sweet spot, just perfect balance. We walk our lives well. It's the other guys who keep messing up. And so my prayer is that we would read this and assume, you know, although I will say not, of, not taking my own warning, is that I don't think we're a church of a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees, but my fear is that one day we become that. And so um, I'm reading this new book. I've, I, whenever I read a new book, I first I I kind of skim it. You know, I kind of flip through from from the back to the front. I I, I kind of see is this book even worth my reading? And as I sort of skim over it, I'm like, okay, this book looks good. I'll, I'll sort of um, I'll, I'll begin reading it. And so. There's a new book out by Larry Osborne, or I don't know how new it is, it's new to me, and it's called Accidental Pharisee, and he addresses a lot of this, 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 uh, this subject of, of how do we accidentally become Pharisees, and in his book he starts with, um, I'm going to read today, I'm going to read, I'm going to start at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, and you guys can go buy the book and read it on your own, the middle part. He starts out with, let's be honest. Passionate faith can have a dark side, a really dark side. Just ask Jesus. When he showed up as God in the flesh, those who thought of themselves as God's biggest fans and defenders wanted nothing to do with him. They tried to shut him up. When they couldn't, they had him killed. That's obviously passion gone bad. 
But the ancient Pharisees aren't the only example of the dark side of overzealous faith. Our history books are filled with other examples. Think of the Crusades or the Inquisition for starters. But that's not why I've written this book. It's not about ancient Pharisees. It's about accidental Pharisees. People like you and me who, despite the best of intentions and a desire to honor God, unwittingly end up pursuing an overzealous model of faith that sabotages the work of the Lord we think we're serving. The problem is not spiritual zeal. That's a good thing. We are called to be zealous for the Lord. The problem is unaligned spiritual passion, a zeal for the Lord that fails to line up with the totality of Scripture. And so uh, the book sort of addresses, because I'm the first to admit, I think having a passion for God is good. We should have deep-seated doctrinal convictions. We should be passionate about what we believe, how we walk with Jesus. Now somehow, as we walk with Him, our, our tendencies... It's very easy to, to develop sort of beliefs or preferences that sort of isolate us from others, and we don't necessarily realize that we've become Pharisees. So somehow there's, there's, there's got to be a way that we can be passionate, and yet in the midst of our passion and conviction, to stay grounded in grace. And so I think this is sort of the warning or the example or the lesson that we learn from John the Baptist as he addresses these Pharisees and scribes. Now, how did we get to this point? The first six verses that we looked at last week of chapter 3, John the Baptist is introduced to us. Uh, He is essentially an Old Testament prophet that wanders onto the pages of the New Testament, a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3 and 4. He after many years of silence, he comes on as this, this forerunner of Christ, this one to announce the king has come. His message was short and sweet. We see in verse 2 of chapter 3 that his message was to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It struck me last week in my study. I thought uh, because I have a friend that is so passionate about grace and and his upbringing uh, grace was sort of challenged or left sort of by the side and and he felt that his relationship with with God was contingent on his life sort of showing repentance that he would make all of these change before God would acknowledge him so so we've had a lot of friendly debates over how does repentance fit into the Christian life and so when I got to Matthew chapter 3 and I see John the Baptist's uh, message of repentance, it caught my attention. I did a word study. And I, oh, how many times does Matthew mention re- repentance? I was sort of trying to you know, load up my ammo bag for when I see my buddy next time about like, man, repentance is all over Matthew. And then when I did the word study, repentance, the word repent is only found in Matthew five times, like twice here and three. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And last week while I was studying, I'm like, I really should have done a word search on the kingdom. Uh, well, I keep seeing kingdom of God in my mind, but it's the kingdom of heaven. So I'm like, well, how many times has he mentioned the kingdom of heaven? Well, this week I, I did a study of that phrase in Matthew. That phrase is mentioned 32 times in Matthew. So in the 28 chapters of Matthew, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is going to come up over and over and over and over. It's a theme that will be developed. A, few, a couple of weeks ago, a Bible study on Wednesday night, we were going through Mark, and the kingdom of heaven came up, and we spent the whole evening sort of wrestling over the meaning, and we really, we, we really found no absolute sort of statement that we were comfortable with other than we believe that God wanted us to begin to be challenged to start thinking in these um, eternal perspectives. Um, Henry Ironside, um, going back to this repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says on repentance, John's message was a call to self-judgment. He urged the people to take sides with God against themselves. And so I believe that this idea of the kingdom is at the kingdom of heaven is at hand in its most basic simplest form john the baptist knew the messiah 
was present. He was born. All of chapter 3 of Matthew is this introduction of the king, the kickoff of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus, who Matthew is going to demonstrate and show to his Jewish readers and to us that Jesus on many, many, many levels fulfilled all sorts of prophecy showing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. The king has come. And so as the king arrives, the first thing that people need to do is to agree with God that they have fallen short of the glory of God, that, they are, that their sin is indeed sinful, that they are sinners, and that they need to, to agree with the king who has basically condemned them. The same king is going to take the judgment for them and for us. And so people are responding by the masses. Uh, If you read Josephus, he says thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are flooding to the Dead Sea, to this area of Judea, uh, to respond to John the Baptist. Word had gone out all over Israel. And as word had gone out over Israel, we're introduced in verse 7 to this group. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there's John challenging people for their sin, calling them to repentance. He's not only naming their sins, people are coming and verbally confessing their sins to him. He's dunking them in the River Jordan and they're going to the shore and there's just tons of crowds. As this is happening, John looks up and he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he addresses them. Clearly he never read how to win friends and influence people. I haven't read it, but I Wikipedia'd it. And the number one rule of how to win friends and influence people, the first rule is don't criticize, con- condemn, or complain. John the Baptist was not following that book. <laughs> and he basically who warned you? What are you doing here? What are you guys doing here? Somebody gave you the heads up that was something was going on and you're, res- you're responding. He said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That seems harsh. Who are these guys? The the funny thing about the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees is generally they hated each other. They were the two leading, um, authorities as far as Judaism religion. They were the ones that said everything. But they were opposed to one another. They hated each other. Except when it came to Jesus, their mutual enemy, they would sort of pair together. We, We read all about the Pharisees and Sadducees like they're buddies. But the Pharisees were the... The religious, they were conservative. They, they believed in miracles. They believed in angels. They believed in a body, bodily resurrection. They, they were made up of, of commoners, the regular people from all over. Like they, they had a, a larger net. The Sadducees were the religious liberals of the day. They were the aristocrats. The aristocrats. They, they had money and resources. They denied anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't, they, they, they didn't believe in the miracles. They only partway held to the first five books of the Old Testament. We'd see, we'll see in Acts, Paul like notices when he's under trial that the two groups are there, and as he's trying to sort of get out of his predicament, he says, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees are saying like, hey, we believe in this. And the big squabble breaks out between the two, and Paul sort of is able to get off scene. And John MacArthur on these, these two groups, he says this. He says, one is conservative and the other is liberal. But the hope and trust of both groups is in themselves what they can perform or accomplish by their own actions and wills. So one works themselves out as being very, very staunch religious. The other uh, uh, was very liberal in their um, their thinking. They denied there was no need for any sort of... um, This whole talk of sin is so... um, discouraging. Why, Why are you guys even dealing with this? Uh, my first encounter ever with a religious liberal person was after I had gotten out of the Navy. One of the ministries that I really loved doing was pre-Hell Week, going down to the base 
um, or when I was an instructor, I would do this. I would share my testimony to the kids that wanted to go to a, a Christian service before they went through Hell Week. I would begin to share the gospel, my story, how I came to Christ. Um, I had a wonderful partnership with a chaplain who had a Calvary Chapel background for, for many years when I was an instructor. Then I, part, I went my own way, that chaplain went another way, and I still tried to keep my foot in the door because this is, was an opportunity to really reach a very closed group of people. And so the first group I went to, I was met by the chaplain, and we're waiting for the class to come. And we started chitter-chattering. I forget which denomination he was with, um, but he was talking with me how they were very progressive in their denomination and how they were... Um, they were considering, you know, ordaining homosexuals, same-sex marriage, and and I was like, oh, interesting. And and I, I kind of, in my mind, thought, well, I probably shouldn't follow up with this conversation. Uh, but then I was kind of curious, so I kept sort of going down the road. And he was sort of, he's like, well, the whole thing with communion just really kind of bothers me. And I'm like, why does it bother you? He's like, well, all this talk of like sin and stuff, it's just discouraging. And, um, and I remember, he's like, we don't want to make people feel bad. And I was like, well, I didn't say anything. I just kind of moved on. And I was like, this will not continue because there's, if you don't understand what sin is, then there's no need for a savior. And if you don't recognize it, there was just no, like the whole, I didn't even understand why he was doing what he was doing. But so those were sort of the, the, the Sadducees. The Pharisees were, were staunch. They were the legalists. They, they, they believed in the way you did things. They controlled the market. They, um, and both of these groups, I think, were concerned because John the Baptist has this huge crowd. I don't think they had any intention of going for baptism. It says right there that they were coming for baptism. But I think they were following the crowds like, oh, we're going to go to baptism. But I think they were kind of collecting intelligence. Like, what's really happening here? And as they go, John the Baptist sees them and he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? I'm looking for, did I, I don't want to skip over it here. Oh yeah, I did. You brood of vipers, you snakes. They're in southern Israel. Snakes are a bad thing. It's funny, since I moved to Valley Center, my whole perspective of snakes has changed. I, um, I mean, I don't think I ever really liked them, but the only ones I ever really encountered before were the ones in an aquarium that you could feed a mouse to, and it was like, ooh, that's, that's kind of cool to see the mouse go through the body. Then I come to Valley Center, and it's like, everybody is, you come to spring, and people are kind of snake crazy. Got to be careful snakes. Do this. And we all have our little tactics for how we kind of keep the snakes away. You see a rattlesnake. How'd you kill it? Give me your tactic on how you killed that bad boy. Like let's, and, and when I was in La Mesa, there was no fear of snakes. Like I, I talked to my city friends and it's like snakes. What's the big deal? I'm like, they're a big deal. You know, Susan Johnson, I don't know how long ago it was that she was bit by a rattlesnake. Um, yeah, like, yeah, she was bit by this rattlesnake in Valley Center probably two years ago. And that was the first time I, like as a pastor, went to the hospital. And I remember seeing her kind of going, whoa. And I think that she told Anna, she's like, yeah, I was like kind of felt bad because I could tell Gunnar was a little uneasy when he visited me. Because before that, I just kind of thought, I'm like, well, rattlesnakes are bad. But I just thought it was like a little worse than a bee sting. It, it was way worse than a bee. Like, we don't want to get stung by a rattle or bit by a rattlesnake. We understand in this part of our town or our, our San Diego County, when we talk about snakes, it's a whole different tone than people that are in the city. And we are closer to the biblical understanding of snakes in Valley Center. So we have a biblical approach of snakes. <laughs> And so he looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers, you are snakes. Snakes kill people. And we don't have, they didn't have doctor, like the, the whole, you got bit by a snake, you were toast. And so this was like one of the most offensive things you could say to a group. You are killing people. He says, who warns you? 
who warns you from the wrath to come? John the Baptist introduces this harshness from our perspective of God. Who warns you from the wrath to come? How did you know to come here to repent? It seems harsh to me. Last night around, you know, it's always on a Saturday night. I have like my my quota of how much handyman stuff I can do in a given month, I think. And I exceeded my year yesterday, and it's still, the ticker's still going. You know, our, our 40-year oven starts to go out. So uh, yesterday, I'm like, well, I think I got time today. Like, I, while I'm thinking, I'll pull the oven out and start the whole process. And then it's like, we're getting like two or three. I'm like, I really need to like get putting the message together. And so I'm sitting down, and I'm putting things together. Um, and around 7 o'clock at night, Anna comes running into the office. She's like, come here quick. And she takes off, and I'm going, oh, no. Like, I'm thinking the way she was reacting, like that there was a dead child or something, like something bad. And as she's taking off, I'm running, is everything okay? Because like, I, I go into super fight mode. And she's like, everybody's alive, but we have a water leak. And so then I like go get the, like I get the, I shut off the water. Then I research what's happening. And it's not a water leak, but it's a backing up of water, which is kind of worse because that water is, it's got a unique smell to it. And um, so then I turned on the water and I'm like, I call Rick, my number one, like, you know, hey, what do you think about this? And normally he's a guy who's not afraid to just tackle projects. He's like, you might want to consider calling a plumber. I'm like, come on, that's not the answer I want to hear. And he's like, well, if it was me, like, if finances, like, I would probably, I would just prefer to, like, pay. I'm like, what's the deal with this? Like, that's not like you, man. You're just supposed to tell me you could take care of this on your own. You could whatever. And he's like, well, if you want to do that, call Daniel Fredericks. I just call Daniel Fredericks. He's like, yeah, I got a couple options about stuff we can do. And so, so then there's like where you put it in the line and you force on the hose, hoping that it breaks the rain. You pull it out, all the water shoots back over you. And, and I'm sitting there now. It's like 8, 8.30 at night, like doing this number. And Anna comes out as she's just screaming whether the water's backing up or not. She's like, what are you preaching on tomorrow? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm speaking on the Pharisees. I mean, there's got to be a practical, like. <laughs> and so finally I reach this point where I stop. I go back to my computer now, like at nine o'clock at night. And I'm like, what was I just working on? And I was like, in, I was in Philippians chapter three, where Paul's talking about his previous life as a Pharisee, which we'll look at. And he sort of ends with all of the English translations um, bleep it out as best they can. Some say rubbish. Some, the, the radical ones will say dung. Um, I wouldn't be allowed to say what he's um, truly conveying in the text, but it's, it's, it's dung. It's it's like fecal matter. You, know, you guys, you see where I'm, and I'm going. I'm like, wait a minute. So, so now there I am, I'm thinking about my pipes at the house because I didn't solve the problem. And it sort of dawned on me. I don't care whether you have a home in Rancho San Diego or you're in a little shack in Tijuana. Whatever the external looks like, when you open up the pipes... It's all pretty nasty. Like, I don't think that if I was to go to open up the plumbing in Rancho Santa Fe, where those beautiful multi-million dollar mansions, I don't think if I open up the plumbing, they'd be like, that's potpourri. This is nice. Like, get it all over myself. No. And that's the issue is that we are good about externals. And that's what the Sadducees, they were all religious on the outside, but their inside was rotten. A few months ago, I sat down to get an apple. I think it might have been the last apple I ate. I'm like, I want this apple. It's beautiful on the outside. And I cut a slice off and it was, you went a half inch in and it was just nasty rottenness all on the inside. And I'm like, I am good with apples for a little bit. Like I kind of like, like there's nothing worse than like when you like are going into a fruit and it doesn't turn out to be what it is. And, and the Pharisees were this bad fruit. They might have looked nice on the outside. They might have had everything. But on the inside, they were totally rotten. 
And if you'll turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3, you know, Paul the Apostle, he, not, not only was he a Pharisee, but I believe that he, it's not like he ever gave up his Pharisee card. He speaks throughout his teaching as a Pharisee. So not, I want to be very careful. It's not that all Pharisees are bad. There there are very good examples of Pharisees, although they're smaller, that believed in Jesus and helped his kingdom cause. But Paul in Philippians verses three, or chapter three, verses one through six-ish, He sort of shares his story about being a Pharisee. I want to start with the the latter part, which is starting in verse 4. He says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Don't take that in. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. People are quick to, to jump on Paul like he was this, you know, I hear it all the time. Oh, well, I'm still praying for Johnny because if Paul could get saved, Johnny could get saved, right? Like, so we have this sort of, that Johnny's like this total hooligan, done whatever he's done, and we compare him to Paul. See, Paul wasn't like little Johnny who was a hooligan. Paul was zealous. He stood for God. So much so that those that would blaspheme his name, he would make it his life mission to bring him to justice, to execute them. He says, according to the righteousness which is found in the law, according to the righteousness which is found in the Old Testament, the Pharisees believed in all of the Old Testament. We talk about the Ten Commandments, but you can count 613 commandments in the Old Testament, which doesn't even go into the yoke of the rabbis, so you can compound that number by however so much. And Paul says, according to that 613, those commandments found in the Old Testament, plus the yoke of the rabbi that he followed, I was blameless. So Paul's big revelation before God is that he was one who thought he was sinless. I don't know many people in American culture that will say, I am without sin. I I don't know anybody. But Paul says that when I was a Pharisee, when I was doing this, I would look you in the eye and I believed in my heart and I had the actions to prove it that there was nobody that could match my zeal if we're taking a test and examining one another about the flesh, there was none greater than I. I was blameless. And so when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, his big revelation was like, man, I, this, this religion, this is sort of, this is sin. I'm a sinner. I don't even understand what holiness is. And now that I see Christ, suddenly I look at my religious self and it's but done go down to verse 8 more than that well let's say it was verse 7 but whatever things were gained to me those things which I have counted a loss for the sake of Christ more than that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but fecal matter is the word so that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the, re- the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And he goes on that he may know Him. This is powerful. He begins this going back to verse 1. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard For you, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
she says, I just, guys, I, he's like, I know how bad religion in the sense of works and self-righteousness and doing these things to, to make yourselves look good on the inside. I know how bad it is. This is where I came from. Don't go there. Stay true to Christ. Walk by faith. It's not by your own works. Your own works are worthless. And so as we come back, you can go back to, to Matthew chapter 3 if you went to Philippians. And so when John the Baptist looks on, up on the, the, the riverbank and he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these people who are, and Paul was one of them during this time as he describes himself, they're whitewashed tombs. They look pretty on the inside, but they are so, so, so rotten on the inside. He uses the term fecal matter. It fits with the pipes that I've seen. It's bad. And he sees them coming for baptism. He says, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And there's sort of a sense of John who's, who hear all these religious guys. It's like, who, who warned you to flee? Like, when did you guys wake up and realize that you were sinners, that you, were, that you, that you realized that you were in need of repentance, that you were in need of getting right with God. And I almost think it's sort of a uh, rhetorical, like he realizes they're not coming to repentance, they're coming to write tickets, to condemn John, to ultimately condemn Jesus, that they are going against the establishment. And he brings up this wrath. In Romans 1, if you want to go to Romans, hold your place in Matthew, or you can just listen. In Romans 1.18, most of you probably have this memorized. Paul, when he writes his, his great Christian constitution, his doctrinal summary to this church in Rome who doesn't know him, what he starts out with is the wrath of God. He spends the first three chapters showing all people from, from religious to non-religious to whoever that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He starts this whole message in Romans 1.18 and he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which was known about God is evident within them for God has made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse and it's this picture of this storm of God's wrath that is coming and it's not unfair God has made himself known he has gone out of his way to reveal himself to give this warning so that humanity would respond that we would resp- repent that we would turn to him He goes all the way through to his argument if you if you went to Romans you can go to Romans 5:9 In verse 1 he says therefore having been justified by faith We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We keep working down and we come to verse 9. And he says, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. I remember when I became a Christian or, or I think becoming a Christian before I was a Christian, I thought Christians were weird. And then people were talking about, Oh, I'm saved. And it's like, you're saved. Saved from what? Like, what, what are we talking about here? What's, what, what? Like, were you almost hit by a car and you got saved and now you, like, gave your life to God because you, like, like, I was a Navy SEAL. Like, save, being saved kind of meant, like, oh, your life was spared. That's kind of where I first went. And then I became a Christian and, and I'd hear this term and be like, what are you guys saved from? It's like, I'm saved, with my, I'm saved from my sin. And I go, man, I'm a Christian, but am I doing something wrong? Because I'm not saved from my sin yet. Like, my sin's still haunting me. My sin is still, like, I'm still being sort of led astray, and I'm trying to do everything right. I'm trying to, to, to not have this struggle with sin. But as we went through Romans, we sort of saw that in Christ, we now have two natures. We have our sin nature and the spirit within us, roommates that hate each other. 
the Spirit is one, and, and the reality is we're saved from God's wrath. As Christians, we still struggle with sin. Like we should struggle less and less with time. We should be sanctified, but in this body we'll always have that tug of war of the flesh. But, but the beauty of the gospel is that, look at verse 9, having been justified by his blood, that Jesus, he made payment for our sin, propitiation, satisfied the wrath of God for us. This God who has wrath against sin, who is bringing judgment against our sin, has made has taken that punishment for us and that we can have safety and security in Him. Heading back to Matthew. The message is consistent. John the Baptist is preparing people's hearts. People are responding. He sees the religious leaders and he does not hold back. You brood of snakes, you vipers, you're killing the people. Who warns you to flee from the wrath of God? Are you actually coming to repent and to get right? He says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Anybody who knows me, well, if you've come to this church long enough, you know I have an issue with a couple fruit trees. I really like apricots. And apricot trees and me just don't get along. Like, I don't know if you're supposed to talk to them or what, like. But I love apricots, and I want an apricot tree that'll spit out apricots. I mean, is it too much to ask that an apricot tree would produce apricots? The thing about fruit trees are ugly for most of the year. They're not, they're not like oaks or pine trees, beautiful trees that they don't, they don't produce fruit, but they're pretty, and they provide shade, and they're there like all the time. But the apricot tree, I pull up every day and I see the, there's no leaves on it right now. I know it's produced one. I just want it to produce more. Like that's what it's, it has one job. The produced apricots and it won't do it. <laughs> I'll start singing to it. And so John and Jesus, like they're going to, this is going to be a theme that we want to see fruit, produce fruit. And he looks at the scribes and Pharisees. He doesn't condemn them, but he says, you better start bearing fruit that matches or aligns with repentance. And last week we, we skipped over to Luke chapter 3, which I won't do just now. But we see as Luke tells the story of the people responding, he gives a glimpse of the kind of fruit that he's looking for. In Luke chapter 3, I think it was verses 10 through 14, three groups. There's the crowds. The crowds say, now that, we've, now that we've repented, now that we've been baptized, what do we do now? And he says, if you have, a, if you have extra clothes and you have somebody who doesn't share your clothing, if you have food and somebody doesn't have food, share with them. Do unto others. Be loving. To the tax collector, he says, don't take more than you're instructed to take. To the soldiers, he says, don't lie. Don't take money by force. Be content with your wages. And I think with this fruit, sort of this, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit where God begins through His Spirit in you to manifesting this fruit. And we as Christians can produce the fruit of the Spirit. We also, in our sin, can kill that tree. You know, we sang a song. It's one of the songs like, I, you know, we all, music's a funny thing. We, either, we, lo- we love songs. We hate songs. We're kind of like, eh, I'm like... But there's songs that I'm like, uh, and I'm like, my wife, like, oh, that's an awesome song. I love it. And so one of the songs, probably because of a theology class, is Psalm 51. It's Bible. It's a great one. Don't take your spirit from me. Well, we have the spirit of God. Like God, like as a Christian, we can't, we're not going to lose our salvation. We've been sealed. But we can, we can be filled or not filled by the spirit. And if we're not walking with God, if we're rotten on the inside, if we've become Pharisees where we're trying to play the Christian game where we look good on the outside, but our heart is just rotten. You go to church and you're just critical of the music. You're critical of the pastor, which there's, there's all kinds of stuff to be critical of me about. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just a man. 
love Alistair Begg the best of men or our, our men at best. <laughs> but you have rottenness on the inside of you. You can put on your beautiful Pharisee clothing, tuck in your shirt, comb your hair, smile at everybody, act great. But the Spirit of God is drying up within you and you're not going to produce fruit. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the be filled with Spirit. And as we walk our life yielded to God, then He begins to fill us with His Spirit, which enables us to do His work. He continues here, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, okay, moving on here. Produce fruit, I think apricot. Man, I really have an issue with that. (laughs) Bear fruit and keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as a father. Don't say to yourselves that your granddaddy was a pastor or you have seven generations of, of Baptist family genealogy or Pentecostal or Presbyterian. They were relying in their traditions to the Jewish people in large part, even still to this day. God made an an unconditional promise to Abraham, so we're good to go because we're Jewish. And John the Baptist was Jewish. And he says, don't think that you can say just because you have Abraham as your father that you're good. For God, if he wants, he can take these rocks and make them his sons. I don't know who said it first, but there's that saying about that there are, that God has no grandchildren. That it's up to every generation, it's up to every individual to make the decision, am I going to follow after God? And I, I love this coming from a non-spiritual DNA of family. That I, in many ways, I'm sort of the first generation Christian in my family. But that's not what he's addressing here. He's addressing those that grew up in Sunday school, that their grandparents are Christian, and you can go down the whole line, and it's easy. And Christian kids in church scare me more than anything because my greatest fear is that we as a church would inoculate our children to the gospel. I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't always. There's no such thing as always being a Christian. You're a sinner. And until you decide, until you choose to follow after Christ, that's when you become a Christian. Sorry, I get a little passionate. But it's coupled with grace. I'm not judging anybody. Maybe. I don't know. Let's get back to the text. It's the safest place to be. Okay, verse 10. He, he warns him, the axe is already laid up at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John the Baptist gives this warning that there's an axe and it's about to chop down the tree. Paul later in Romans would talk in hindsight that that tree got chopped down. And in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 18, Paul writes this, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them, the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. Paul addressing the great problem in the Roman church is that the Gentiles began to overtake and number the Jews. Paul says, yes, we've been cut off, but the root is still there. And just because you've grafted in, it's the root of, of Israel that is supporting you. And don't think if God disciplined them that you can't be disciplined yourself. Jesus says in John 15, verses 1 through 2, I am the vine, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. And so this picture that I see with John saying that He's warning, listen, the axe is there, discipline is going to come, the Messiah is here. It's game time, guys. This is the, you're running out of time. Get right with God. Repent, for the King is here. Verses 11 to 12, I'm going to kind of circle back. We ran out of time to, to get into these. But what I want to point out in verses 11 through 12 
it's going to paint the picture for today. I'll get back next week. We'll start looking at baptism. But he says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with an unquenchable fire. We hear it all the time. Oh, Jesus would be okay with this. Jesus would be okay with that because Jesus is love. And it's like, are you reading anything in the New Testament that there's great warning that Jesus is holy? Jesus is God. Jesus is the one. Do you think... I got to rephrase. I got to think about my question through. Jesus went to the cross to die for all of the sins of the world. This is a guy who takes holiness pretty seriously, right? And I love that the Gospel of Matthew starts out with this warning. It's always this call to repentance. It's the an awakening of the human soul when they when the human recognizes I am a sinner and I am in trouble. The Great Awakening in the United States in the early 1900s was kicked off by Jonathan Edwards, a guy that read a boring sermon that you can look up. He literally just read his sermon to this crowd, sinners in the hand of an angry God. And he paints this picture of a spider that's being held by one little thread over this burning inferno. And he called the people to repentance and to trust in Christ, this loving God who was that string that held us. And it set our nation during that time on fire for Jesus because he's our only hope. He's our only hope. We want to walk passionately with Jesus. And as we're walking passionately with Jesus, we're going to get we're going to get convictions about things. And, and if you have a conviction about something, that means you're, you're passionate about it. And on Tuesday, I went to this, this, this pastor's meeting and I took a, a friend who I don't want to say his name in the church he's with, but he's a, he's a dear friend of mine that's a part of a, a Calvary Chapel church. And I, I'm, like, I'm like, hey man, you want to come to a Southern Baptist like pastor's thing? And we were leaving and, and we were talking with each other about how we both sort of hold deep theological convictions on one issue, but then there are other group of brothers and sisters who hold a, a different sort of trending theological viewpoint and sort of how we have gone to more of these um, pastors' conferences that are sort of um, circles that are outside of our comfort zone. And we both said it's really good because while I have my deep convictions, there's like this personal face and these guys love Jesus. And so I like kind of how we want to guard ourselves in our passion f- from condemning those that that don't see eye to eye with how we see scripture and, and to really, ch- it challenges us to what, what are the key things? And the key thing is who is Jesus? Larry Osborne, I warned you that he would end, he ended his book the accidental Pharisee with, in the last little section, he writes this, we are all susceptible in different ways. The dark side of my zeal might look quite different from yours, but in the end, the pathway to becoming an accidental Pharisee always starts with the same three steps. It begins with a failure to grasp the true gravity and depths of my own sin. That is the most important thing theologically that you can come to terms with, that you are a sinner and your sin is vile before God. It's not about comparing your sin to my sin because then you'll look pretty good when you start comparing yourself to me. And we like to compare ourselves to others. We need to compare ourselves to God and recognize how bad our sin is. Then it's followed, number two, by a heightened disgust for the sins of others. Your sin doesn't look so bad, but Johnny's sin, man, he is terrible. There's a saying that I try to live by, that I want to hold myself to the highest biblical standard that I can and to hold everybody else to the very lowest biblical standard that the Bible lays out. And then finally, number three, 
It's then justified by a cut and paste theology that emphasizes some of the hard sayings of Jesus while pretty much ignoring those that speak of his compassion, mercy, and grace. When I was in Bible college, we were going along. There was an older guy who he was working his degree backward. The first degree he earned was a doctorate. He was a dentist. He did 20 years as a dentist. And he wanted to, he, he, in order to go to seminary, he had to start with his bachelor's. And so we were going through classes and he'd invited my family and, and a couple others to his house to watch some videos that he wanted to show us. And so he showed us the videos. We had a nice dinner. And, and through the dinner, he says to us, he's like, man, I'm just so fascinated by dispensationalism. I came to Bible college wanting to share Jesus with people. And now I just want to go around the world and tell people about dispensationalism. And the three of my buddies that were with us were like, what did you just say? I'm like, I'm okay with this, but, but it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord. We thank you that our life, our security, our freedom is found in Christ alone. We thank you that the gospel is about grace. It's it's not about our works. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow a, a deepening passion and conviction and understanding about who you are, what the Bible says about you, that we, that we would be zealous. But Father, we pray that you would help us to, to never fall into legalism, that we would be a people of grace. We are saved by grace. We live in grace. We walk by grace. Father, we pray that you would help us to have a gracious spirit for those of us Lord, who have never never come to faith in Christ, we pray that you would help them to see clearly that it's not about works, it's not about appearance, it's about believing in him who paid it all. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk with you in love and in grace. May we guard ourselves from becoming Pharisees and Sadducees. Father, we ask that you would shine the light on our hearts to show us areas that we're rotting away right now and that you would cleanse us you would fill us with your spirit that you would help us to bear fruit that's in line with you we love you and we pray this in Christ's good name Amen